God's Word. Uh, as you know, uh, a, uh, something that we have received as a tradition from Ezra the priest, as uh, we see in the book of Nehemiah. So uh, we'll read these 10 verses. I am reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. And Father, we pray that as we look at this psalm tonight, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit whom you have placed within all of us who believe and, and, and poured him out upon us, that he might give us understanding of these words or that he would cause the name of Jesus to be lifted up and glorified or that he would teach us, that he would lead us into all of your truth. God, give us the wisdom and discernment also to know how these words written some 3,000 years ago in a faraway country would still be applicable to the heart of men and women today. Give us that understanding, God, we pray. And might you be glorified in this time. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Okay, as we look at this 64th psalm, and as we see it's a psalm of David as uh, is written in the inscription here, and uh, we, we really have nothing that gives us a clue in terms of the situation, the occasion for uh, David writing this particular psalm. Now, uh, in some inscriptions, uh, David writes the occasion, as he has in, in several psalms uh, before this, uh, but not on this one. And, you know, basically, it's pretty clear that David is writing of his, his enemy, he's writing of some conflict that he's having, writing of some bitter words that are being spoken by them against him and so forth. But 
David's life was filled with conflict, you know, so at which time in his life, which conflict might this, this be, which unspoken conflict in the sense of things that may not have been presented to us in God's word, is this a part of, part of we, we, we don't know, we, we don't know. Uh, but it is a time of conflict, certainly. And for us, as we read this psalm, you know, as David lays out what's going on, he prays his prayer, and then he speaks of what's, going, what's up with his enemy and, and all, and then he speaks about how God is going to deliver him. It is something that is replayed time and time and time in the lives of believers ever since this time, quite frankly. Because in our world, we face affliction. We face hardship. We face difficulty. Uh, we, in, in personal relationships, sometimes that relationship is not a good one, and, and it's with an enemy, someone who might want to harm us for some reason. Uh, or maybe some harm comes to us out of no intent from somebody, but be, just because we all are sinners and we all err, we all do things that can be hurtful or say things that can be hurtful towards someone from time to time, then that could be the case. But the point being, while the details of those verses, well, those first six verses that David lays out are not the same as the details in our own lives. In a general sense, it applies. And certainly, when we get to verses 7 to 10, that applies too, in a sense of God stepping in to defend us, even as David is confident that he will step in to defend him. So, as we look at this, Let's keep those things in mind. Verses 1 and 2. I'll read those again. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. Here we see David basically praying his prayer in those two verses. In verses 3 through 6, he writes about what's going on with those workers of iniquity that he identifies here at the end of this second, uh, second verse. But note the things that David is asking the Lord to do. And in that, as, as we see David saying, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation, he is asking that God would hear this prayer. And one of the clues here is just look at the verbs that are here. Hear, preserve, hide. David's asking God to hear his prayer. He's asking God to preserve his life. He's asking God to hide him, to hide David, to hear his voice even in his meditation. Now, some of the translations that we're familiar with, NASB, ESV, others, uh, rather than the word meditation, uh, have the word complaint. And it's a valid word. That's a word that is translated as complaint a number of times, even in the New King James Version. But it's not like David's got this complaining spirit. 
it's a complaint in, in the same sense that in a court of law, uh, there's a complaint that is filed against an individual, and that person has to defend himself. Uh, uh, the complaint is like an accusation. It's a statement of accusation. And, and that's what David is doing here. I mean, he's stating the accusations against his enemy as he lays them out here in the following verses, right? You see how that, see how that works? So it's, it's from a legal perspective, it's a complaint. Not like he's got a complaining spirit. Oh, God, I've got it so rough. Oh, I'm so... Yeah, I mean, no, he's not complaining. But there are some very real difficulties that he's facing, and he is laying out those difficulties and charging his enemy with these particular things. And so he wants the Lord basically to hear his case. Now, one of the things that we see here is, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. It's interesting that there's one thing to speak using your voice. It's another thing to meditate and have thoughts within yourself. And it would seem that, that David is doing both. He's crying out to the Lord verbally with his voice, but he's also praying to him within his own heart as well. It, it seems to be the case as in the, in the way that he has worded this. In Psalm 55, verses 1 and 2, we see uh, David writing here as well, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I'm restless in my complaint and moan noisily. That kind of sounds like you might have a complaining spirit. But the word complaint is there, just as we see here in verse 1 of Psalm 64. But again, David there, as well as here, is basically crying out to God that he might hear his, his cry, that he might hear his prayer. And in verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. Now, there's a little play on words here. My enemy, in their wickedness, is devising secret plots. And as they're hiding in secrecy, hide me from them. What's he, there's a play on words like that with, with what David is saying. But hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. Whenever I see that term, hide me, anything to do with hiding, asking God to hide us, asking God to cover us, so this kind of thing, I, my mind immediately goes to Psalm 32 when David says unto the Lord, you are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. I think of the song that we have sung for several decades now. You are my hiding place. You always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Now that, that particular worship song, when, I, when we first started singing that, that became my very favorite. It just touched my heart. You know, um, you, you always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. I will trust in you, you know. And just going that, that full circle from needing a place to hide and and, and God is indeed a hiding place for us. He's a, he, he is a, 
our, our, our sanctuary. He's our refuge. He is our strong tower. He's a, he is that place, and not that he provides the place. He is that place that we run to for protection. And we're guarded from the enemy in him. And so uh, that, 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 that's what I see in terms of a connection with another psalm that, that David wrote also uh, there in Psalm 32, verse 7, by the way, in that psalm, uh, it is worded that way, you are my hiding place. But we, but we see that he's wanting to be hidden from the secret plots of the wicked. And also from the rebellion of the workers of, inequ- of iniquity. And so the idea of this rebellion is that word is used here. And there's, there's a different word in some, used in some of the other translations. Rebellion here in the New King James Version. But it does speak about being a, others coming against him. But the idea of rebellion would speak of, of the possibility that this is something... Well, if it is rebellion indeed, it would be from a fellow Israelite. Someone under his rule as king... If indeed he wrote this as he was king, it would seem to be the case. But the point being that there's rebellion in the camp. There's rebellion in the hearts of, of, of people. There's rebellion in every one of our hearts here this evening. And it's only the work of Christ in the presence of his spirit that keeps the rebellion from coming up. And there are times that we rebel anyway. Any time that we are disobedient to the Lord, that's an act of rebellion against his kingship in our own lives and against his lordship. And we call him Lord Jesus one moment, then the next moment we're disobeying him. And what's up with that, right? You know, but it's, it's true. There's rebellion in our hearts. And so we, we, we see the rea- reality of that. Moving on to verse 3. We see David giving further description of these workers of iniquity that he writes of here in the second verse. These workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. So we see David portraying the tongue of the wicked as a sword. They sharpen their tongue even as a warrior sharpens his sword for battle. And this, these workers of iniquity are using their tongues as weapons, which is a very common thing. It happens in relationships all the time, doesn't it? Let me ask you something. Has someone else's tongue been weaponized against you? Ever? Anyone ever say anything to you to deliberately hurt you? That's this. That's what this is. And of course, in the case of Let's just assume that David is king and he's got his enemies from outside Israel as well as right there in Jerusalem. And in the recent Psalms, we've been talking about the uh, rebellion of Absalom, his son, against him. 
There were others. And certainly as we watch politics today, this is going on all the time. Things that are spoken, things that are written, you know, with uh, social media as it is, um, television and, and written media in terms of the news. We see this kind of thing happening all of the time. Words being used to bring hurt to somehow do damage to another person. And we, have, we see it happening politically all the time. And it works both ways. It works both ways. It's just the way that it works because, quite frankly, that's the way the hearts of men are. And women. That's the way our hearts are. To do those kinds of things. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this in regard to that. He said, slander has ever been the master weapon of the good man's enemies. And great is the care of the malicious to use it effectively. As warriors grind their swords to give them an edge which will cut deep and wound desperately, so do the unscrupulous invent falsehoods which shall be calculated to inflict pain, to stab the reputation, to kill the honor of the righteous." What is there which an evil tongue will not say? What misery will it not labor to inflict? I love that because it's so true. It's true. I've had this kind of thing done against me. You've had this thing done against you. To some extent, I'm certain. And if we've lived in this world and had relationships for any length of time, this kind of thing has happened to us. But you know, I, uh, one of the things that's taking place here is that David is writing as the victim of the malicious use of tongues, right? But we need to guard our hearts that we don't become the one who uses our, our tongue in that way against someone else as well. Let us not just be thinking, oh yeah, I remember when this guy said this or this gal said that or you know, whatever, my husband, my wife, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. You know, it, it, well, as true as that may be, the Lord would want us to check our own hearts to see where we might stand with this. In fact, the Lord does a good job in including this in his word. The book of James, for example, right? In writing about the tongue. In, in James chapter 3, after he's written since the first verse, basically, in this chapter about the tongue and the dangers of the tongue and so forth, in verses 8 to 10, he writes this, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. It just doesn't work to bring blessing through our mouths and then turn around and bring cursing from those same mouths. It's a confused uh, portrait of who we are.
other than the fact that I think it is safe to say that every one of us who are saved, who are right with God based on the work of Christ, we, who have his Holy Spirit within us, we still have the flesh to deal with. There are times that the flesh wins out. You know that passage in Romans chapter 7 where Paul writes about this. You know, the things that I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. The things that I do want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then he goes on into the 8th chapter and says in that first chapter, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who walk in the Spirit. So it is, it's just a wonderful chapter. And, and I'll say this again, as every time I allude to the 7th chapter of, of Romans and the way that it can speak so truly of what we are as people and how far short we fall in our walk with the Lord, it can leave us down. But we need to go on and read chapter 8, which is a beautiful chapter of encouragement. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you read chapter 7, at least read Romans 8.1. But the following verses through the whole chapter are incredible. It's an incredible chapter in the New Testament. Well, these bitter words are the arrows that David's enemies are placing in their bows. The, the, the tongue, the tongue being weaponized, these bitter words that, that come forth. That they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not you know, as we look at that fourth verse, doesn't that look like an ambush? They shoot in secret. It's not, that, it's not like they're so far away that, that they won't hit you. They're close enough to hit you, but they're shooting in a secret spot. They're hidden. They're camouflaged. They're in the bushes or whatever. It's an ambush is what it is waiting for you to walk by, and suddenly, boom. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. And the idea of the, the, the sudden shooting is that it is so swift, and it's like you don't even know what's going on, and so there's no danger of them being found out. It's that kind of a thing that's being talked about here. But it looks like an ambush. And I'm going to read some more words from C.H. Spurgeon. And looking at his words on this psalm, there were several things that he said, I thought, you know, that's cool. And rather than try and reword it, I just, I just copied it and I'm going to read it to you. Because I can't improve on his language, that's for sure. He, he wrote so colorfully. But he said this, sincere and upright conduct will not secure us from the assaults of slander. The devil shot at our Lord himself and we may rest assured he has a fiery dart in reserve for us. He was absolutely perfect, the Lord. We are only so in a relative sense. Hence, in us, there is fuel for fiery darts to kindle on. Observe the meanness of malicious men. 
They will not accept fair combat. They shun the open field and skulk in the bushes, lying in ambush against those who are not so acquainted with deceit as to suspect their treachery and are too manly to imitate their despicable modes of warfare. So the malicious words, these, these fiery darts, these, um, these arrows, bitter words that come against us. You know, I think, I think the best response to that is simple prayer. You know, it brings to my mind the words of Jesus when he was being nailed to the cross and he prayed for his persecutors. No, they weren't persecutors. He prayed for his executioners. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They knew what they were doing. They just didn't know who they were doing it to. That's the point that Jesus was making. They don't know that they are, that they are murdering the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh in human form. Now, it may be true that those who would sling these arrows or shoot these arrows of bitter words and maliciousness to us uh, that uh, they know what they're doing and their intent is very real. But even then, I think that's a good example to follow. You know, the, the very first martyr for Jesus, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, we recently went through that on Sunday morning. In Acts chapter 7, you know, he was stoned for his words as he looked up into heaven and stated that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, and, and all of the blasphemy for which the leaders of the Jews accused him and so forth. But he said the same thing. Lord Jesus, forgive them. Forgive them. Bring this not upon their heads, he said. Were his exact words. Bring this not upon their heads. So might we follow that? Might we follow that? And certainly not retaliate. Certainly not retaliate. In fact, a passage that's just hitting my mind right now, I didn't have it in my notes, but turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, Romans chapter 12. A great um, passage in, in regard to how we're to respond to others around us. We see beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12, these words, Repay no one evil for evil. That sounds like there's no exception, right? No one, Paul wrote. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wonderful words for us to follow. And by the way, as, as Paul is quoting there from uh, the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20, by, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, he's quoting from Proverbs when he quotes, for in so doing you'll, be, you'll heap coals of fire on his head, we might think, Oh, if we give him a drink, then he's going to feel the, the heat of the coals and he's going to get burned. Cool, I'll, I'll give him a drink because I want him to pay. You know, I mean, we can have that. That's not what's meant here. It just simply means he's going to be awakened to what's going on. That, that's the idea behind that. So we need to be careful about how we even interpret those words. But we see that we are not to respond in a malicious way. Going on, verses 5 and 6, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. So David continues to write about the, the way that these enemies of him are acting, encouraging themselves in an evil matter. So obviously it's a group of, of men that he's writing about. They're gathering together to um, lay out their plots and, and with the encouragement, they're, they're strengthening themselves, they're strengthening, strengthening each other as they're alongside each other. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, they'll never find out about it. You know, that kind of a thing. And, and they're just, they're encouraging each other in this evil that they're plotting even believing that no one will see. Who's going to catch us? They'll never find out. They'll never see that it's us. This is great. You know, can't you see a group of uh, men doing their evil planning and just doing the, ha, 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 we, we've got them this time. They'll never find out who's doing this. this I mean, this is foolproof, you know. The problem is the one who thinks that is a fool himself because as the scriptures say, Numbers 32, 23 says, your sin will find you out. The context of that in Numbers 32 is Moses uh, leading the people uh, through the wilderness and they're going to be going through the promised land and all and uh, uh, toward that area. They're still on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River and there are two and a half tribes of Israel who want to stay there and they promise that they're going to go with the, the men, they're going to fight the battles they'll leave the women and children behind but the men will be a part of the whole thing and, and basically Moses said well that's cool if you do that but if you don't, in fact the whole verse reads this way, uh, if you do not do so, then take note you've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out so, yeah, your sin will find you out. Something we don't think about. 
often enough. Often enough. Our sin will find us out. And it may be that a person that we are plotting against may not find out. But somehow there's going to be a leak. Somehow it will be known. Bottom line is, we can't hide anything from God, right? And that's where we have the problem, and he will lead someone to find it, if not just simply speak it to their hearts with the word of discernment, the word of knowledge. And so, these who are saying, who will see them? Well, they're forgetting that there's a God who's watching, and he's very good at turning over unturned stones to bring some sense of justice. So there's no fear of God on the part of those who are planning. They're devising iniquities, verse 6. We perfected a shrewd, a shrewd scheme. And then verse the, the end of that sixth verse, both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. You know, as we see that sixth verse, this reminds us of Jeremiah 17, 9, which tells us that the heart of man is is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, and so we need to be on guard against others, on guard in the face of others. There is so much um, lying that goes on in the world, so much seduction, um, so much deception. One thing that we know is the heart of every person is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. That's what God says. And it's only the work of God in that heart that moves that heart to a greater Christ-likeness. But that's still in every one of us. It's still there. It's still there. So we have to be on, on guard against, uh, in the face of others, but we also have to be on guard in terms of our own hearts too. Because I can't afford to trust my motives at times. And I've got to be led by the Holy Spirit and led by the Word of God and know that that's what's leading me and not my own heart. Uh, and, and pray that the Lord will Watch over me. You know, I, uh, David writing in Psalm 139 says, see if there be any wicked way in me as he prays and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, so we've just simply got to be care. We've got to be careful. Um, one other quote from Spurgeon here. He says, wicked men have frequently the craft to hasten slowly, to please in order to ruin to flatter that before long they may devour, to bow the knee that they may ultimately crush beneath their foot. I think in the world of Western politics, that's true, very true. And I think it's very true in many, many people. We just have to be careful. We just need to be careful. Now, David goes on, 
Now we see a bit of a change. In fact, we see that wonderful two-word phrase, but God. All this is true. All this is going on. This is my enemy. That's what they're doing. This is their plotting. They're scheming, and they're in secret and all this. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. And you know, I didn't read that quite right. Let me, let me do that again. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. They're going to shoot at me, but God's going to shoot at them. Suddenly, they shall be wounded. In the same sense that they suddenly will shoot at the righteous, at me, at, at the blameless, God is going to cause his vengeance to come swiftly upon them. But God. Don't you love those words? But God. David writes, just as Joseph spoke several hundred years prior to this, in Genesis 50, 20, when he as at the right hand of uh, Pharaoh was overseeing everything in regard to Egypt and, and, and the, the recovery from the drought and all these things that, that, that was going on. And, and when Joseph's brothers came and all, finally the moment came where he knew, he knew who they were. They didn't know who he was. He revealed himself. They were afraid. And he's encouraging them. But at the same time, I mean, he's saying, he's saying to them, don't worry, I'm not going to harm you, I'm going to help you. But then he says in verse 20 of chapter 50 in Genesis, but as for you, you meant evil against me. Don't think that I don't know that. But then he says, but God meant it for good. He used your wickedness and your evil hearts to accomplish something, a purpose that is much greater, and that's basically so all of us could be saved. God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You know, bottom line is, if, they, if, if Joseph's brothers had not thrown him into that pit, They would have all starved to death. But we see God's sovereignty here. God's sovereignty in, in actions. And in, in, in regard to that, how many people here, I'm not necessarily going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have seen someone perform some wicked deed against you or a loved one but have also witnessed God turn it around to his glory and to you and your family's benefit. I've seen that happen. That's been the case in my life, in my family's life. And, and, and so, let's never downplay the evil and let's, let's never say to somebody, you know, it's okay you know, now we need to forgive them. Okay, yeah, it was evil. You know, I, I know what you intended to do. I know what you did do, and it was painful. But I forgive you. Right? 
That's what God wants of us. But at the same time, God uses these things in our lives. He uses affliction. He uses hardship. He, he uses difficulties. He uses when we've been hurt by someone. He uses when we experience pain and loss. He uses, he uses these things in our lives to make us more like Jesus. That's what he does. That's what we want, right? We can find ourselves complaining against God for doing the very thing that we want him to do. Understanding that that's how becoming more like Jesus is accomplished through the difficult times in our lives. And David wrote, just as the Apostle Paul would say, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Guys, we all need to be, when we're going through difficult times, when somebody does something against us, there may be a conspiracy against us, even as there was against David here. We need to be aware of God's power. We need to be aware of the fact that he's on our side. Romans 8.31 says, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to be aware of God's great love for us, that it is unending, it'll, it'll never stop. Romans 8 again, verse 37 to 39. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What wonderful words those, those are. Any other created thing. Now, what is it in our universe that has not been created? Someone can say it if you like. I'm waiting. What in our universe has not been created? God himself. Thank you, Pastor Frank. Leave it to the pastor. To, yeah. It wasn't a trick question. It really wasn't. Yeah, God himself. Everything else has been created. And something I've encountered in, in, in sharing that, that th those last three verses there in Romans chapter 8, that's the way that beautiful chapter that I was speaking about earlier ends. Um, you know, well, maybe nothing can separate us from, our, from his love, but, you know, I, I can just be bad enough that, you know, he'll just forget about me. And he won't, he'll stop loving. No, any other created thing. You are a created thing. So you can't make him stop loving you. Doesn't mean that we won't pay the price for what we do. And it doesn't mean that a person who never acknowledges Christ as Savior won't have to pay for his own sins. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't love him. For God's love the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so, 
We've also got to remember, guys, when we're facing a tough time, when things come against us, a person comes against us, or a group of people come against us, that God is filled with wisdom, He's filled with knowledge, and everything that He is, we've got to remember so that we can be encouraged about the outcome. Because God's at work. As a pastor, uh, I have, I don't know how many counseling or what I would prefer to call it is biblical guidance sessions I've had with individuals. I don't know. Or couples or whatever. I don't know. A lot. But too many times I've heard from a child of God, a child of the one for whom nothing is impossible, a child of the one who saved them, a child of him who cares for his children, watches out for us, protects us, wants the best for us. I've heard too many times after encouraging them with words about who God is, what he's like, what his heart is for us. I've heard too many times, yeah, but pastor, you don't know how hard this is. And I grieve every time I hear, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, there are no buts. And when you say, yeah, you're saying you agree with me. How can there be a but? You know, Hebrews 2.18 tells us, for that he himself, speaking of Jesus, has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. And Hebrews 4.15, a, a few verses later, fourth chapter, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, of course, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You or I, you and I, all of us together, will never go through anything that Jesus didn't have to endure. Yet, without sin. That's a high priest we want to guide us through this temptation. And whenever we go through affliction... We, you know, we, we might say, well, that's, that's not a temptation. It's just I'm in pain. But there's a temptation that comes along with it. The temptation is to doubt God, to doubt his love, to doubt his power, to doubt his goodness, to doubt all the Bible says about him and act as if he's not those things. That's the temptation that God helps us to avoid. Um, well, no, not to avoid. He helps us. He helps us to avoid the sin by, by successfully giving us a way out. So David acknowledges that God is going to defend him even his, as he's going to defend you and me. We see there also in those verses that basically 
because of all the planning and the scheming of his enemies, that they're going to backfire on them. God's going to shoot them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. The same thing that they're trying to inflict on David, God is going to do to them. It's just going to backfire. And so he's going to cause them to stumble over the things that they say. Other men are going to see this stumbling and then they're going to distance themselves from those on whom God is taking revenge. Just to distance themselves. Verses 9 and 10. The righteous shall be glad, excuse me, all men, verse 9, all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust him and all the upright in heart shall glory. You know, not only will these men who see flee away, but there's going to be fear. A fear of God is going to be the result of this. This is the response of men who see what's going on. These who hatched this plot secretly against David, when revenge is taken, when God shoots his arrows at them, they're going to see it and they're going to see that God's at work. They're going to fear. They're going to declare the work of God. They're going to openly declare that God is doing this, and they are going to wisely consider what God is doing. When we see God at work, we need to wisely consider what He's doing. Understand that He's at work. Problem is, many of these who see, while there might be a fear, they're, they're not connected with that fear of God. Wisdom. I mean, really, what we're, what we're seeing here is that when people see God taking vengeance on David's enemies, it acts as a deterrent. Well, we don't want to come against David if God's going to do that to his enemies. Okay, David, we'll submit. You know, it acts as a deterrent. You know, in, in, in today's world, um, especially politically and in the area of uh, crime and punishment, you know, the idea of punishment actually being a deterrent is just slipping away as if it's not real. It is very real. It is very real. You know, in, in some nations, um, Islam nations, where they take things very seriously, someone's caught stealing and they're publicly uh, um, penalized for their sin and they go out on the square and their hand is placed on a wooden block and then it's chopped off. People see that. It would make me not want to steal if I didn't have some other motive of the heart in wanting to be right with God and please Him, which ought to be our motivation, of course. But still, there's a, it's a deterrent. The 
just not enough wisdom out there in our world today. Then finally, verse 10, David declares a spiritual truth. Notice how the words, the righteous and the term upright in heart, they're, they're equal here. They're, they can be interchanged. The righteous are the upright in heart. But the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust him and shall glory. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust him and shall glory. Who are the righteous? Well, Isaiah wrote that there is none righteous, no, not one. Right? Are there any righteous people? Well, in a practical sense, no. But when we receive Christ as Savior, He cleanses us. He cleanses us from sin. He gives us His cloak of righteousness. So those of us who are right with God based on what Jesus did for us on that cross, we are the righteous. Not based on what we did, not based on any righteous action that we take. You know, I mean, there may be a sense in which, well, on a practical sense, I'm more ratchet, righteous than I used to be. That ought to be the case. But the moment I truly acknowledge that Jesus died for my sins and I gave my heart to him, allowing that or, or, or um, agreeing with that, then I was cleansed and righteous. My sins were removed in the sense of the judgment that should come because Jesus took them away. Even the sins that I had committed since that time. So any of us who are right with God based on the work of Christ are righteous, but not because of anything that we do. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, Jeremiah writes this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Not in what we do, not in what we've accomplished, not in having wisdom or might or riches or anything else, but glory in the Lord himself. Not we all glory. Not we all glory in him and in Him alone. Amen. And Father, we pray that you'll have your way in our hearts. Even as we've gone through this psalm and we see the, the way that this, this psalm has gone and the, the, the flow of it, the, the things that David wrote, Lord, we can relate to a lot of it. And thank you for giving us your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for showing to us your faithfulness in exercising your right to avenge, to avenge for us. Thank you, Lord. 
And God, we pray that you'll have your way with our hearts tonight. Might we be careful about our response to others. Lord, might we respond in the way, Lord Jesus, that you teach us not to return evil for evil, not to be overcome by evil, but to, be, but to overcome evil through good. Help us, God, we pray. Might we live lives that are faithful to you and glorifying to your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 